Welcome to South Asia Sphere, a monthly roundup of news events in the region, now a podcast. It is Tuesday, the 3rd of November, 2020. I am Amita and I'm joined by Raisa and Shibanga. Hi. Hello. So the three stories that we're covering in this edition of South Asia Sphere are the Myanmar elections, the large opposition-led rallies in Pakistan, and some interesting developments on collaboration for COVID-19 vaccines in South Asia. So while much of the world is worrying about U.S. elections, South Asia is set to have a general election in Myanmar on November 8th. This is the second general election for the country since the end of military rule in 2011. If you've been following elections in Myanmar at all, you know that Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, the NLD, won the last general election in a landslide victory in November 2015. Aung San Suu Kyi's party is expected to retain its popularity among Myanmar's Bama majority, which makes up around 68% of the population, and voters who are familiar with the NLD's policies are probably likely to have a status quo or incumbency bias when deciding which party to support during this time of great upheaval. While the military has a constitutional guarantee of 25% of seats in the national legislature, a policy that army generals say is necessary until the country has a multi-party democracy, We expect the NLD to retain control of both houses of the legislature as well as several state assemblies. Yeah, just to go back to your point about the the lack of attention to the Myanmar elections, you know, in light of the U.S. elections soon, um, I think it's also worth noting that when there is international focus on the country, it usually seems to be on the, you know, usual themes of decline of Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, stature in in the international, in the West, you know, uh, post the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya. I mean, there was recently this interview on Financial Times of the of the Myanmar historian Thant Mintyu, and it was interesting that it completely left out the issue of the elections, and again the you know focus was on on Suchi. Although one interesting point he made was that you know unlike the kind of singular association there is with Suchi and human rights, especially in the Western imagination in Myanmar, she also seems to kind of mark a continuation of the you know Burmese anti-colonial nationalism. Um, that her father spearheaded. So I think it's interesting that in, in the last few years, especially, there has been some, you know, some decline of NLD's support among ethnic minorities. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The NLD has undoubtedly lost favor with ethnic minorities, um, you know, which constitute about 30% of the population. I think that's in part as a result of the 2017 military operation where over 730,000 Rohingya from Myanmar were driven out of the country into refugee camps in Bangladesh, but also as a result of fighting between the Arakan army uh, and the Tatmadaw, which restarted in January 2019. Uh, and that's, you know, a story that does get some coverage in the Western media. But, you know, how that translates into seats for ethnic parties in the upcoming election is one that's less present. So Myanmar's election commission actually cancelled voting in several areas in Myanmar, and that's going to result in 36 seats nationwide not being filled in this upcoming election. And, you know, the disenfranchisement of over a million voters in one of NLD's least popular states. Um, Voting has been cancelled either partially or completely in 13 of Rakhine's 17 townships, and that's actually a huge blow to ethnic minority parties like the Arakan National Party or the ANP, which is the country's largest ethnic group uh, in national parliament. Amita, why was the voting cancelled? So the commission cited security reasons, 
So the fighting between the Arakan army and the Tatmadaw, which I already mentioned, but that fighting has intensified over the past few months, and that's what the commission was referring to. But there is a subtext here because analysts are saying that the cancellations are going to unfairly favor the NLD uh, since they you know, occur primarily in areas where ethnic parties like the ANP enjoy strong support. Yeah, and I've been also reading that that's not the only reason why the election won't be free and fair. So, for example, human rights groups have flagged other reasons, including the parties not having equal access to state media, government critics facing censorship or arrest. And of course, the main issue that is being discussed in this context is the Rohingya being denied participation in the election. Exactly. And this year, like in 2015, several Rohingya candidates have been barred from running. And the Myanmar government continues to apply the 1982 citizenship law and election law to disenfranchise Rohingya. Several residents of the Rakhine state have also not been registered as voters or given ballots. The NLD is also likely to see a drop in its popularity due to its handling of COVID-19. Cases have spiked in the last few months. Until August 2020, cases were below 500 and there were less than 10 deaths. But as we record this podcast, Myanmar now has more than 50,000 COVID-19 cases and over 1,200 deaths. So the next story that we're going to be talking about is these opposition-led protests in Pakistan. So as I said, uh, there's a number of different parties involved. The chief one among them is the Pakistan Muslim League. There's also the Pakistan People's Party, the Jamiat Ulema Islam, the Pakhtunwa Awami Party, and uh, some smaller ones, including the Balok National Party and the Pashtun Tafus movement as well. So collectively, these groups have come together and are known as the Pakistan Democracy Movement. Uh, so far, there have been at least three rallies that they've held in Gujranwala, Karachi and Quetta. So, Raisa, um, is it clear what the protests are about and what the demands are? So, ostensibly, you know, one of the main reasons that they've cited is to raise opposition to rising prices, power cuts, the closure of businesses and just economic misery. But in reality, there are other issues that are being highlighted as well. Primarily among them, you know, criticism of the Imran Khan government, with most of the opposition leaders saying that, you know, the government must go and um, even criticizing Khan's inaction in Kashmir. Of course, they're also being very careful to criticize Modi as well, since Khan hit back at that criticism, saying that, you know, they're just playing India's game. But something else that's really unusual is that they are also criticizing the army, which is also slightly ironic, given that Nawaz Sharif had cordial relations with the army, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, although less so in recent times. But, you know, ousting Khan is a tall order given that he's backed by the military and it's a bit of a risky strategy. And as a result of this, there's been, of these rallies, there's been turbulence as well. So, for example, before the Keta rally, a member of the Pashtun Tafu's movement, Mosin Davar, who was planning to participate in the opposition rally, was actually barred from entering the country. Apart from this, a GeoNews journalist was also abducted. Um, his name is Ali Imran Syed, and he had captured footage on a raid to arrest Muhammad Safdar, who is Nawaz Sharif's son-in-law and a member of uh, the Pakistan Muslim League. 
So although the journalists did return home the next evening, especially after journalists and political parties, uh, the opposition parties protested and demanded his recovery, he did return home. But the issue of Safdar's arrest itself and who ordered it is a mystery. So government representatives have said it was an orchestrated drama from the opposition. Uh, the police are saying that the paramilitary came and kidnapped the provincial police chief and pressurized him to make the arrest. And the police have actually gone on long leave in protest. And meanwhile, the army chief has ordered an investigation. So everyone is denying and pointing fingers at other parties about who uh, gave the order for this arrest. Right. And I think it was interesting. There's an interesting cross-border element to this also, especially the the incidents that you talked about. Partly maybe because of the complexity, but also partly because of, you know, just the failure of, in this case, Indian media to cover uh, the story properly and accurately. Because after all these events, there was this, um, you know, circulation of some fabricated story about the police and armed forces in Pakistan, in Karachi, kind of having, as one tweeter, I think, said, an armed fight uh, or a firefight. And uh, that was actually picked up by major Indian online and, and television media and, you know, ended up becoming this massive story, uh, completely fabricated again. And I think resulted in Pakistani social media once again kind of having fun at, at the Indian media's ex- at their expense. But I think also really brings out the important point about how poor the cross-border political coverage is in South Asia. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is just the latest example of how journalists across the border, they don't have presence in the other's country. And so they have to rely on secondhand reporting. And the results, as you said, are quite absurd. So you could see, for example, similar instances even around the 2019 Pulwama Balakot airstrike, when Indian warplanes crossed the border into Kashmir, and they dropped bombs near Balakot, which they said was to target a terrorist training camp. And Pakistan said it was an uninhabited area. And then, as everyone who follows it knows, Pakistan retaliated, a warplane was shot down and a pilot taken prisoner. More than that, the real story became how the different countries, uh, India and Pakistan, were portraying the unfolding events. And with sometimes, you know, ridiculous results um, with, you know, simulated examples of nuclear strikes. And you saw that here, too, because... There were these, as you said, these memes that went viral, and some of them were, for example, pulling screenshots from Bollywood movies to showcase what was being called a civil war, but was entirely false in reality. Even figures like GDP per capita can be subject to polarized interpretations and narratives when they cross borders. For example, the IMF's 2020 economic outlook recently noted that Bangladesh's real GDP per capita would surpass India's by 2021. And, you know, the way that the Indian and Bangladeshi media explained that story was very different. So in the Indian media, it was explained using the lockdown imposed to curtail the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic, while in Bangladesh, uh, media outlets chose to highlight instead how Bangladesh has progressed in terms of advancing its export manufacturing industries or improving its uh, female labor force participation and other such progressive policy measures. There was some objective criticism of the statistics. So former chief economic advisor to the Indian government, Aravind Subramaniam, also noted that for the comparison to actually be meaningful, those GDP per capita figures needed to be translated into numbers that 
you know, reflected domestic inflation and productivity growth. But nonetheless, you had, you know, op-eds on both sides in the Dhaka Tribune, for example, noting that uh, in just under five decades, Bangladesh has leapfrogged from being the poorest country in the world right ahead in the South Asian standings, um, you know, admonishing India's high-pitched jealousy or prickly paternalism in its response to the IMF report. That's, you know, to me at least a, a reminder that even real news can stir up very acrimonious responses between neighboring countries. Well, that brings us to the final big story of uh, this episode, which is uh, some interesting developments on the front of developing, procuring, and collaborations on vaccines. So globally at the moment, the three main global actors in drug development and testing are British, uh, the Chinese, and the Russian. And in South Asia, it's having some interesting implication in also how countries are planning uh, the procurement and you know, supplies of these vaccines. So India, for example, the Serum Institute of India has had a uh, major agreement with the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, developers from the UK to manufacture 1 billion doses of the vaccine, presumably both for uh, the domestic population, but also for supplying to the global south. In Pakistan, you see, interestingly, some Chinese COVID-19 vaccines are currently in phase three trials. Other countries have not exactly started it and they're kind of waiting for, I think, WHO approval. So, for example, Sri Lanka has explicitly made that clear that before they begin trials, they're looking for um, okay from WHO specifically on the, on the Russian vaccine Sputnik. In Nepal, you see kind of an interesting mix with you know, both the Oxford AstraZeneca, the Sinovac from China, as well as the Sputnik from Russia looking to uh, start trials. But so far, the government has not given a clear signal on, on permissions, although it seems some private parties have made deals, especially uh, with the Russian uh, drug manufacturers. But interestingly, there's also some collaboration happening within the region. So, for example, there was some recent news about the Nepal government in talks with Bangladesh government to see if they could strike a deal to purchase up to 2 million doses of banned COVID, which is uh, a Bangladeshi vaccine in pre-trial phase. And I think there are some similar developments around the region as well. Yeah, so exactly. There's also some talk about India and Myanmar collaborating. They actually recently held a first round of discussions on opportunities for collaboration, uh, specifically looking at the COVID-19 vaccine. So officials from the Department of Biotechnology, the Ministry of External Affairs and of Public Health uh, from Myanmar participated in the discussions. And as kind of a symbol of good faith and their commitment to help Myanmar, the Indian Foreign Secretary actually presented 3,000 vials of remdesivir to Myanmar State Councillor. You know, remdesivir is an antiviral drug which hasn't really been conclusively proven to successfully treat COVID-19, but it has shown to kind of have an effect in shortening time to hospital discharging patients who have severe pneumonia. Um, but this was more kind of a symbolic proof of commitment. And he said, indicating India's willingness to prioritize Myanmar in sharing vaccines as and when they become available. Apart from that, India has also offered um, e-Indian technical and economic cooperation courses, specifically looking at COVID-19. And these are being conducted by Indian institutes like the All India Institute of Medical Science and the Postgraduate Institute of Medical Education and Research in Chandigarh. And there has allegedly been healthy participation from Myanmar 
although we don't know if there's any educational institutes in particular that have tied up with India for this. Yeah, I think just to conclude the topic, I mean, again, these are, you know, kind of the early signals and and no clear kind of lines can be drawn. And, you know, some people are already talking about kind of vaccine nationalism and vaccine diplomacy. And I think at some level, these countries are also, you know, individually trying to see what can be the best arrangement for them. So it's a mixed picture right now, and but I think something clearly it's interesting and worth following up in the future. If you like this edition of South Asia Sphere, do head to our website, himalmag.com, to check out the cartoons that are illustrating these stories, which are done by Gihandi Chikera. And um, also do check out some of our recent stories. Um, so we actually have one on Indian and American media's portrayal of Kamala Harris which will be interesting to read as the U.S. goes to the polls. And uh, we have a story on Amnesty India's recent closure as well. That's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. We hope to see you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.